Our epistle reading for this Resurrection Sunday comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise." For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin 
and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. O God, our Father, you are the source of all light. By your word, you give light to our souls. And so pour out on us now the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding that being taught by you through your word, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. People of God, modern man has a strange and distant relationship towards death. Our present separation from death and our unfamiliarity with the brutal realities of death is really unheard of historically. And because we as a society have developed a new and different kind of anxiety toward death, you might even say that we've developed a neurosis about death and dying that manifests itself in all kinds of selfish, sinful, wicked ways. Think for just a moment how the blessing of technological and medical advances have completely altered how we approach the reality of death. Before modern medicine, death had a more direct and immediate impact upon our lives. Death was an almost daily reality. It was common for women to die in childbirth. Children died of childhood diseases. Many injuries and illnesses that we are able to overcome today through surgery and medicine a hundred years ago or more, those were fatal. In addition to that, throughout most of the world, you would live very near or in the same house with older relatives and you cared for them all the way up to their death. Sickness was tended to not in hospitals, but in the home. The doctor would visit your house. Elderly folks didn't live in nursing homes. They lived in houses with their families. And so when the day of death came, there were no funeral parlors and cemeteries were not on the edge of town like they are today. Cemeteries were next to the church. So in many cases, the bodies of your loved ones lay in the home before being buried at the church. And when you went to church, you walked right past their graves. And you also walked right past that patch of ground that your body would end up in one day. Death entered your home and entered your life on a regular basis. By the time of your own death, you had personally cared for and buried many of your loved ones. You held their hand as they passed. You dug their graves. Our situation today is very different. We rarely face death, and so we rarely give death very much thought at all. Even the way we handle our food is different. If you kill your own chicken, if you wring its neck, if you cut off its head, if you drain the blood, if you pluck it and cook it and eat it, you see a very tangible association between death and food. Your food has bones in it, reminding you that this was a living creature just a few hours ago. And your prayer of thanksgiving for that food takes on a very different emphasis. God gives me life. He gives me strength from the life of that animal. And that animal died to give me strength and life. Compare that experience with the experience of opening up a box of chicken nuggets. That death happened somewhere else. 
out of sight, out of mind. For us, for most of us, food just appears. And when we eat the chicken, there's no indication that it was ever actually a living creature. In the box, it is boneless, it is shapeless. So not only are we and our children become, becoming agnostic to the realities of animal death, the realities of our own mortality have been altered in our minds. We all expect to live very long, healthy, productive lives. And when death and age and sickness interrupt those plans, we feel like something has gone very wrong. This is not the way that it's supposed to work. We know somewhere, somehow, that we are mortal. And we have this vague sense that death is going to come to every one of us. But when it shows up, illness and death are still a shock to us. It is a shock to us in a way that it wasn't to our ancestors. And this, this shock, this incredulity, this bewilderment stupefies us. We say, me? Die? No, that can't be right. Not me. Now, the fact that we have wonderful medicine and we have longer lifespans and the fact that we're fighting back against the curse, that our lives are healthier and more free of pain, all of these things are the result of the advance of the gospel. And yet we have a generation living off of the benefits and the blessings of the gospel without recognizing King Jesus as the source. And so what happens is they take for granted these things and rather than acknowledging our undeservedness of these good things, mortal beings that we are, uh, these good things, these blessings have become an insulation from reality. We're like a child sticking his fingers in his ears and singing la, 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 la to distract ourselves from the reality of death. We, we do this through our entertainments and our comforts. We create a dream world where death seems abnormal and accidental and inconceivable. Uh, death is something that happens to video game characters. And when they die, well, you just reset and you get a new life. It's very detached. We all work to, re, to, to eradicate all sense that we're human, that we're limited, that we're aging and dying creatures. But we're fighting an uphill battle against all visible signs of weakness or disability or ugliness or helplessness or age. We struggle to convince ourselves and everyone around us every day that we do not carry the smell of death within us. And then we push to the edges of society anyone who reminds us that we are all dying. The sick, the aged, the disabled, we'd rather not deal with them. And what we end up with is a shallow, superficial, inauthentic, neurotic culture, this carefully manicured illusion where success is measured in the end by how well we keep up the appearances of being alive and young and beautiful and full of life, all the while suppressing even the slightest hint that we are weak and we are fallible and we are all headed to the grave. And then one day that reality comes crashing in and all of these illusions crumble. Now, this might sound counterintuitive because you would think that the people of a different generation who lived with death every day, you would think that they might have the bigger problem with a fear of death and anxiety about death because it was always in their face. Not those of us 
who actively avoid it to the point where we're completely unfamiliar with it, you might think that we would have less fear of death. But actually, when death stares you in the face every day, you're forced to come to grips with it. You process it. It's a part of life. It is our generation where where we have cultivated such an extreme denial of the truth of our mortality that we've developed all these pathologies, these neuroses around the subject of death. And the truth is that we, we so actively suppress, the truth that we so actively suppress is that you and I and everyone you know and everyone you've ever met and everyone you've ever loved has been granted a limited number of days by their creator. One day, we are all going to be gone from this earth. And in an entirely new generation of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be the moms and dads, the brothers and sisters, the teachers and students, the business professionals, the doctors, the architects, the carpenters, the accountants. No amount of denial or suppression is going to change the fact that we are not going to be on this earth forever. We have a limited time. And despite all of our efforts, we still have no solution in ourselves to the inevitability of our deaths. We have no answer to the power of the grave in ourselves. No answer to the finality of the grave in ourselves. But a solution does come from outside of us. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes about the man who overturned the verdict of death. We look at the grave and we try to deny it and forget about it. The ancient man looked at the grave and shrugged his shoulders and said, well, what can you do about it? But the man Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, has done something about the grave to claim a victory over death. He's done a new thing. From the time of Adam forward throughout history, death always got the last word. Death always had the final say. But now with Jesus, for the first time, a new authority has been established that swallows up death and decay. And because of his victory over the grave, the world can never be the same again. Death no longer has the final word. Physical death is not the only possible end to the story of human life. Those world-changing events, which Paul was referring to, are the events that we heard about in our gospel reading. I'm sorry, our, um, our gospel reading and our epistle reading this morning. That Jesus who was crucified, the Jesus who was put to death in a public shameful way at the request of a bloodthirsty mob conspiring together with the Jewish courts and the local authorities, that Jesus whose body was laid in a tomb, just like everyone else, That same Jesus was vindicated by God and came up out of that tomb, unlike anybody else. And God had ordered that his death, the death of Jesus, and his resurrection work in such a way that when Jesus went to the cross, not only was his body crucified, but the old order, the old world, the old man was crucified there with him. And when Jesus was laid in a tomb, the old world was buried. And when Jesus came up out of the grave, he gave birth to a new world, a world where things run a new way, where if you are united to him and his death, that means your old nature, your sins get nailed to his cross, your old humanity goes into the grave, and you are born a new creature 
in a new creation. In 1 Corinthians, we read about the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus to us. That if we're united to Jesus, if we're found in him, we get bodies fit for eternity. The bodies that we have are weak. These bodies are corruptible. These bodies fail us. Sometimes it feels like we're disintegrating right in front of our very eyes. And Paul says that we who are united to Jesus will one day have our own bodily resurrection at the time that God determines. That we will have incorruptible bodies with no sickness, no failure, no injury, no shortcoming. All the things that we try to fake now in our own efforts are all resolved. Not only will corruption be replaced with incorruption, but he says mortality will put on immortality. Those united to Jesus and his resurrection will no longer have any expectation of death, only more and more life, life abundant, more life and strength and vitality than you can imagine. And because of this, Paul can repeat the words of the prophets. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? This is a shout of triumph, mocking death and the grave in their defeat. Death is like a stinging wasp or a scorpion that attacks and tortures and harasses us. But when it tried to sting Jesus, he swatted it off. And now all of us who are in him are immune to the venom of death. And after that comes a curious little phrase. He says, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. Now we know that the wages of sin is death. Death is the ultimate penalty for sin. We know that sin kills us. It kills our relationships. It kills the world. Sin causes death. But here Paul flips it around and he says, not only is it that death is the result of sin, but also that sin is a result of death. Sin is a result of death. Consider that for just a moment. How does the power of death and the fear of death result in sin? Well, it goes back to where I began. Death holds this ominous, looming presence in our lives that we can't ignore, though we try to ignore it. We can't fix, though we try. We might delay death, though we always fail. And all of that vain striving works itself out in many sinful ways. Satan wields the power of death and the threat of death over us in such a way that we think death is the worst, most unbelievable, most unacceptable outcome. So we are tempted to think that this body and this life must be preserved at all costs. We end up being enslaved by that satanic influence that draws us to this kind of frantic upkeep of this life, of this reputation, of this existence, forgetting that there's anything beyond it. The fear of death, death of career, death of respectability, death of opportunity, can even cause us in certain situations to outright disobey God to preserve ourselves. As we'd rather hold on to our comfort, hold on to our livelihood, we'd rather live another day in this life than to do what God says for us to do. Paul addresses this very thing in Hebrews chapter 2. 
There he talks about how the fear of death creates this bondage to the devil. He's talking there about how Jesus joined himself to our flesh and blood. And he writes, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to slavery. There it is. There it is again. The sting of death is sin. Sin is a product of death. And the fear of death creates all kinds of disobedient and rebellious tendencies within us. It was fear of death in the wilderness that led the Israelites to complain because they thought that Moses had brought them out into the wilderness to die. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery. The fear of death caused them to desire slavery over liberty. When we believe that our lives and our energy and our days are finite, that there's nothing beyond what we can see and experience here in this life, then we become like animals. We live by the law of the survival of the fittest. We hoard glory and honor and blessing and love and respect. We claw and grasp for everything. If this life is all there is, if the resource of life is in limited supply, then life and all of its benefits go to the strongest, the fastest, the meanest, the least scrupulous. And then we live our lives in a constant state of hypervigilance, suspicion, paranoia, rivalry, envy, competition, and aggression toward others. We compete for respect and significance. Think on this, that the fact that someone else gets love or blessing doesn't mean less love or blessing for me. I don't have to be jealous because it's not a zero-sum game. More respect or honor for you doesn't mean less for me because in the triune God, there's this endless source of happiness and contentment. There's just more and more life for all of us to share as we share in the life of the Trinity. But if you think that life is limited and inseparably bound to the grave, and that's it, then death is going to hold this terrifying power over you and you are bound to behave in this beastly way. In that way, the sting of death is sin. Paul also says the strength of sin is the law. It's something he covers in more detail back in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about this perverse way that in our sin, uh, we, we are inflamed against God's holy law when we hear the commandments and willfully disobey. But thanks be to God, he continues, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus, we have victory over all the powers that provoke us to sin and rebellion and futility. Paul's not done. That grand section on the resurrection ends with that last exhortation. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You see, if we have died with Jesus, if we have put to death the old man of the old creation, death no longer has any power over us. The fear of death is no longer the, uh, something that Satan can use against you. So you can die to your sins. 
knowing that there is greater enjoyment in obeying God than fulfilling the lust of your flesh. You can die to your self-centeredness. You can die for others. You can put aside your own comfort and your own preferences uh, for the life of other people. You can take calculated risks, knowing that it is not you who preserve your life. It's not you who preserve your reputation, your career, your honor. God preserves all of that. And he gave them for you to use for his glory. Apart from Jesus, our death has no real meaning. Apart from Jesus, there's no resurrection promised. There's no ascension. There's no relevance to our death. But in Jesus... And because of his resurrection, death is just the gateway to more life. So it is fitting that this section of the epistle ends with a call to steadfastness, immovable courage, confidence in God, and in his power to bless and keep and protect your work. So the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ takes the fear of death off the table. We are no longer held as slaves under its power. We live every day knowing that this day could be the last one God gives us. And if that's it, well, it's one more day than we deserved. The grave is not a scary place. It's not terrifying. It's not a threatening place. Why? Because Jesus has already been there and he came out the other side. He's there to lead us through the grave. So we don't live fiendishly hoarding time or money or power or life or respect as if there's a limited supply, we share in the life of the Trinity, where there's abundant life, life flowing out everywhere. So we can laugh in the face of death and the face of the grave and live all out because Jesus has plucked out the stinger of death for us. People of God, that's what we celebrate this Easter. Our Lord Jesus, through his death, burial and resurrection has defeated death. So we don't ignore it. We don't stick our fingers in our ears and whistle. We acknowledge it and say, well, yeah, there's such a thing as death and our days are limited and we're all headed for the grave. But you know what? Jesus has already taken care of that for me. I will die, but I'm not going to be condemned. I am loved. I am covered by his covenant mercies. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, I will be raised to new life. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.